Sam Mulberry here back on the Live from AC Second feed with another autobiography podcast. This episode was recorded May 22nd, 2014, and it's an interview with uh, Bethel Professor Emeritus Dick Peterson, uh, who taught for years in the physics department here at Bethel. If you know anything about Bethel, you know that the physics department is really uh, it's amazing, and Dick is a, a big part of why it is uh, so amazing. It was really fun to sit down with Dick. This was this was the first interview I did with somebody that I didn't know really well. I mean, I I, I knew Dick, but I didn't. I don't think I'd ever had a, a long conversation with him. And this podcast was definitely the the longest conversation that I ever had with him. So, um, I really enjoyed it, um, and I hope you do too. Welcome to Autobiography. Uh, this is my interview with Bethel physics professor Dick Peterson. This was a really interesting interview to do because this is the first professor that I've talked with um, who's someone who I really didn't know very well. I think uh, Dick and I have had um, maybe a few very brief conversations uh, in our lives, but, uh, but not much. Um, Dick is a university professor emeritus um, at Bethel, um, and he's teaching Gen Physics 2 this semester. Um, and, uh, and sort of doing other works in the labs and things like that. And um, this was it was really interesting to talk with um, someone who isn't in the arts and humanities uh, to talk with uh, with a physicist and realizing that a, a lot of those a lot of the same questions that we're thinking about in the humanities are also um, you know some of those those same sort of tensions and issues that we see there we're also seeing uh, in in areas like physics. Uh, and this was this is was a really uh, really exciting interview to do. I don't want to uh, to belabor this. I want to get to the interview and get to Dick as as soon as I can. In many ways, I felt like um, this interview was my attempt to just try to get out of the way uh, and get Dick talking, and uh, it was really spectacular. If you want to email the show, uh, the email address is autobiographypodcast at gmail dot com. Um, if you want to go to the show page to look at um, past episodes or to look at book and media recommendations, it's autobiographypodcast.wordpress.com, so you can uh, you can take a look at it there. Um, but other than that, I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. Well, my guest is uh, uh, Dick Peterson from the Bethel Physics Department, um, and this is this is one someone I'm really excited to, to talk to. I don't know if we've ever, we've met, I don't know if we've ever really had a conversation before. When I was a student here, um, I feel like I was in the orbit of lots of students who I were in the orbit re- of you. I was trying to remember who would have been some of the students. Oh, people like uh, Matt Lang and Aaron Rendall oh. and Amy Herman. But you and honors too, right? Yes, And yes. I know they were, in fact, I was director of honors for that honor Two years right. there. I was in the time. I was in the first group, so we okay. didn't have. Okay. So our K course wasn't taught year. by you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 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 we've. I don't think we've ever actually had. Yeah, a conversation. I followed the real taskmaster, uh, Marge Schaefer. That's uh, right. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, um, <laughs> go ahead. Yes. Yes. And so you're somebody that um, I'm just really excited to to talk to. My my last interview was with Kathy Nevin. So talking to people who are. Sort of at a, a much different point in their careers. That's a good way of putting that. That's yes. right. That's you mean, right. <laughs> it means older people. That's right. Um, but, and I definitely want to talk about um, your time here at Bethel. Um, you came in the in the nineteen eighties. Um, and was there a physics department when you came here? Or were you part of starting that? There was no. There was um, there was a physics math department for a decade and a half before, or at least a decade before that. Uh, and then a, a fi- the physics major by itself uh, started a few years before I came with 
Tom Greenlee and Bob Carlson. Okay. And then it definitely grew, obviously, during the It did grow in the 80s, um, and then it's had pretty steady growth ever since. Okay. Um, and that that's one of the things that I that I want to uh, to eventually get to, but I want to pr- start earlier than that, yeah. um, and and sort of think about the ways that you um, that you end up here. Um, so I was reading reading a, a biography that you had sent me of you, um, and you grew up in very small town Wisconsin or on the farm in Wisconsin. <laughs> Absolutely All right. right, and I'm still at heart a, a farm boy, and students kind of know that. Um, so yeah, I had. Uh, of course, I went to high school in the late 50s and then uh, undergraduate and graduate work in the turbulent 60s, which was an unbelievable time, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what was it like growing up in a, in a, on a farm in a very small, you know, I mean, you, you were in a school where there were you and one other person in your grade, is that correct? Oh, uh, that's true, and the... Was eight years in a one-room schoolhouse um, where we walked uh, or rode our bikes um, for a mile or so each way, and um, it's a good, in a way, a wonderful education. We uh, were into some um, real inquiry-based teaching at that stage. I would say with sure, the students, students teaching each other. And all that. Um, so I'd say for the three R's and so forth, it was uh, was great. It is not as good an environment for a broad background in sure. uh, arts or or even athletics or anything like that. Sure, because you're you're just out there in a little school, sure. and um, so it it had its strengths and weaknesses. But when I went to high school, that was going to the big city, and that was. Um, was Ellsworth, which had a couple thousand folks. So, so how big was your high school graduating class? Uh, it, it was ninety or so. Okay, could okay. be smaller. Sure, uh, sure. So it's actually smaller than my graduating <laughs> class, but, but that that must have been a big transition too. Uh, to yes, it was. Particularly for me, I was you know just dreadfully shy little kid, and um, going to high school. I mean, in this case, the one room school went the full eight grades. And so it was just the four high school years before college. Um, yeah, big transition. And I think, uh, and I still did work on the little farm um, mm-hmm. during that time. And, and actually through the undergraduate years, too, I was a commuter and uh, still uh, lived on a farm. And, and certainly the community actually revolved around the church. Mm-hmm. It's a in a maybe in a, a typical environment like that at that time, particularly so a small covenant church was it and the uh, one room school were kind of the centers of the community. Sure. So, so when you were in those those years, you know, eighth grade and younger, did did you think your life was going to be on the farm? Or that's uh, hard to say. I think my parents might have thought it would be, but. Uh, you know the the little school had maybe uh, twenty thirty books total in our little library, and I, I certainly conquered uh, books many times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on uh, that work, I was kind of fascinated with engineering and uh, particularly airplanes. So I had you know some dreams, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't really have a clue uh, what I would do and. Like like most people in the eighth grade, sure, sure. But there are some folks you know, sure. who really know what they're going to do 
and really follow through on it, I certainly didn't. Right, um, right. And I was probably not the most diligent student in the world in that uh, I remember getting a note from the teacher saying, uh, Richard spends too much time looking out the window and dreaming. Um, uh, anyway, I probably did dream. But sure. um, what were you? What, what, I mean, what were the things that you, when, when your mind wandered? I mean, if you can remember, I, when your mind wandered at I, that age, what kinds of? I did think about. Um, I did think about airplanes. I did think about making stuff. Even at that time, I, on the farm, I enjoyed um, playing around in the garage. It, we did not have a big farm. This is mm-hmm. a tiny little farm, so. But we had a few tools, and uh, I did enjoy making things, and probably even at that time developed a little confidence that I could—I was kind of clever with my hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, which right now we're sitting here in a lab. This is kind of still my home, uh-huh. and uh, I still have on my shelf my uh, a few trinkets from the farm. Sure. So in a way, it did start there, but uh, not that I really was focused. Sure. What was your what was your um, experience? I mean, what was your experience with science before you, before you went to high school? Was I mean in that in that school um, setting was there much? Uh, probably nothing we would call science today. Uh, I mean, um, my first real science class I remember was in the high school that that ninth typical physical science mm-hmm. called general science at that time, which. Which I remember, that was kind of the opening that I, um, I remember for the first time they're actually asking a question in class. Mm-hmm. I, I still won't go into the question, but it, uh, uh, had a pretty good teacher. He was actually a chemistry teacher, but, uh, I got the feeling that I could kind of like this stuff. I didn't realize how important math was at that point. Mm-hmm. And coming from a one room school into a high school, you, you're weak in math, so I, I can remember my first year in that ninth grade taking algebra, and um, that was hard for me. Um, gradually, I remember a, a physics, the the only physics teacher in the school saying, Peterson, if you're really interested in physics, which he picked up, mm-hmm. that um, you better get a lot more serious about arithmetic mm-hmm. <laughs> and algebra. Uh, and so gradually I did, but but math was uh, kind of a weakness at that point. Mm-hmm. And even now, I mean, math, I was actually a math major and physics major in, in college, but uh, I delight in using math to do physics, but I'm not that into pure math at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you, um, as as you were going through uh, going through high school, what were what were the experiences that pushed you towards um, towards physics? I mean, is that that teacher clearly picked up on something in terms of you being interested in that? When you when you were when you finished high school, did you did you go to college as a math physics major, or did you still I, need to find your way there? I did start out as an engineering major, like uh, a lot of. Uh, Future physics folks start out in engineering. I was pre-engineering at River Falls, University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and um, that uh, by that time I was, I really did think I wanted to do physics. I, I wasn't at all sure what what that meant, mm-hmm. but it it meant to me um, the ability to uh, climb as in an economic ladder. Mm-hmm. It meant. Uh, I knew they made physicists at least had at that time uh, a job, 
And uh, at that time, I dreamed of having a, a salary that might be five figures. Um, at least to me, at that time, uh, uh, I don't think my dad, who was a truck driver and a small farmer, um, did not make that. So I was, I was a, I was what you would call in that era. A, I was hungry in mm-hmm. the sense of really being motivated. This was also the Sputnik era mm-hmm. in high school. You know, so during high school, the Sputnik was launched by the Soviets, and and the whole country, kind of along with President Kennedy, decided we we're going to the moon mm-hmm. that decade, and. and so and that was kind of a heroic era for science and physics sure. and uh, aerospace in a way. So that was the push, but I, I was I wanted to climb. Uh, that was along with I think I think that was more common at that time than maybe with today's students. Uh-huh. Uh, I had no great ideals to help the world, um, uh, so I. I I was pushed, uh, but as much by professional goals sure. as anything. Now, in in the and I could be wrong because my background isn't in in, in the sciences at all. But uh, I sense that that at least in certain fields, there's a tension between sort of like science as industry and science as academia. Or not? Is, is there not a tension, or is that more fluid? Um, yeah. Or was it at the time? I guess too. I, I probably wouldn't have known that at that time, but I, I probably even starting out in engineering and seeing that I didn't at that time starting out in engineering meant you started in a drawing class, learning how to sharpen your lead pencils and and turn the pencil as you draw a line to make a sharp line. Uh, hmm. I quickly helped me decide, um, uh, even though I did fine in that. <laughs> <laughs> that physics would be more fun, and, and uh, anyway, so that at that time, even though I, I probably was thinking applied science mm-hmm. more than uh, basic science, um, I can't ima- really remember you know peering up at the heavens and saying, "Ah, oh, I want to basically understand the universe." Uh, that was not did not drive me particularly. Hmm. It, it maybe did later, but sure, not, sure, not at the, not at that point. What I mean, what were the effects personally, if there were any, on the fact that this is the the nineteen sixties, the space race, all that stuff? I mean, was that was that stuff that you were, um, even if that wasn't maybe your particular motivations, but but was that something that was affecting? Even the way things were taught when you were when you were learning um, that stuff, I mean, how cer- present was that? I guess certainly the the space race and money pouring into the beginnings of NASA at that time um, impacted us all because we saw it as the future, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, so there's no doubt about that. I'd say we were almost tragically unaffected by uh, the social turmoils of the country at that hmm. time. Um, so that that's a big subject in itself. But, sure. Um, so in my case, it's kind of interesting. I start the 60s for four years commuting to college, still milking two cows by hand, hmm. and uh, forking uh, the, the poop out of the gutter <laughs> every night. Um, for four years to 1964, 
and by 1969, I was a postdoc at the best uh, measurement lab at, in the country at Los Alamos. Yeah. So that, that was quite a transition. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So where did you where did you do your graduate work at? I went from River Falls to Michigan State and uh, was impacted there by NASA money. I had a NASA fellowship for three years. Um, I would say just uh, my... Um, River Falls had wonderful, provided a wonderful background in many ways, but at that time, uh, the elegance of my physics was not very high. Mm-hmm. So all I can remember is my GRE score was not very high. Mm-hmm. So I was delighted to get that fellowship, and I'm sure it was maybe some profs at River Falls who, who helped that happen. Um, so, but I can remember very distinctly uh, being in our little farmhouse uh, about to take a letter to the mailbox to accept an assistantship at Case Western in Cleveland, and a phone call came through from uh, Professor Haynes at Michigan State offering this uh, uh, fellowship just before I was going to the mailbox with the other one. So there, uh, by a few minutes, uh, I ended up going to East Lansing instead of Cleveland. Huh. And Michigan State was a very good school for me. It was a good fit. Uh, it helped me catch up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't the Harvard or Stanford because uh, I didn't have the background ready for that at that mm-hmm. point. But it was um, uh, perfect for me. Sure. And, so, and actually, of course, when all of us choose graduate schools, <laughs> you, you realize uh, your whole life, in a way, is impacted by those sorts of decisions in kind of uh, scary ways. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, so was your was your education at River Falls? I presume that was a fairly broad um, physics education. I mean, yeah, it's not, it, not a lot of specialization, or was there? Uh, River Falls had. Even at that time, a fairly strong physics major, so that was the wonderful part of it. And I had uh, two or three uh, teachers there who really impacted me mm-hmm. and saw that I had some potential. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but River Falls was not, you know, it was not a Madison or, or Minneapolis. And uh, for me, actually, coming from my background... River Falls was crucial, sure. maybe even more so than Michigan State, because it, uh, I got the attention I needed there. Uh, if River Falls had had an ask office, I would have been almost right, uh, right. needing it because of weaknesses in math and so forth. Sure. That's when I got into the lab there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had some kind of neat nuclear equipment, which was mm-hmm. available during that era, mm-hmm. that um, I, I got quite excited about that. How much? How much specialization within physics? Like, were you? Uh, and I'm going to start throwing out words yeah. that I don't like. I don't really understand what optics is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know that that that's that's a major area for you. I mean, right. is, was that stuff already? That all came later. Okay. That was more graduate work. Okay, that, uh, that's what, that's what I was. What the the time at uh, River Falls, as much as anything, was maturing okay. from almost that one room schoolhouse shy boy. Who could not talk in front of anybody? Um, I had really bad stage fright, hmm. and my most terrifying experience as an undergraduate was a speech class, hmm. which uh, I, I passed. But I've never forgotten the, t- <laughs> the terror of needing to give a talk because I, I could not. And so, 
one thing I was sure of is I was going to do physics, and I definitely was not going to teach it because hmm. um, so I almost went into physics and engineering because I wouldn't need to teach sure. or perhaps even talk to people. So sure. I, this was uh, my goal at sure. that point. I, I had some inner confidence that I could do things with my hands and uh, study things, but but uh, but and that didn't really change till almost postdoc time. Mm-hmm. So so in if if that's what River Falls that experience gave you um, in terms of preparing you for your your graduate work, what was your graduate work like? What did how did how did that shape you? Um, yeah, I. The fellowship was very helpful, again, for catching up. In a way, I'm still at this time catching up from a one-room schoolhouse to to being able to do graduate work, and um, that fellowship helped. It allowed me to f- take a few more math classes um, and so forth, and I could really concentrate for three years on studies, and, and I really needed to do that. Mm-hmm. And I was a very competitive student. Mm-hmm. No one worked harder, mm-hmm. um, and I would say that even started at River Falls as well. Mm-hmm. We, in that Sputnik era, students were particularly maybe in physics and so forth were really driven uh, a bit more than I see out here in mm-hmm. the lab uh, now. Um, so, why do you suppose that is? What do you, is it? Just generational or? I, I think we had a confidence at that time that if you worked really hard, you could climb. And I'm not sure today students can realistically even assume that. Mm-hmm. Um, we also were starting at the bottom in a way from a small rural environment and knew we had a long – we knew that. We knew mm-hmm. we had a long way to go. We knew about our weaknesses. In my case, I knew I could not talk in front of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that um, – Meant you were, you were, um, yes, you were hungry and kind of a scrounger. Before class started, there were two or three of us who worked together quite a bit. Uh, we'd have all the books checked out of the library on that subject. We mm-hmm. would have them available so we could work harder than the class was covering even the material. Um, on a test, we uh, before a test we did not help each other much, I must say. We were were just um, studying on our own and and so forth. And I, every point on a test I would, you know, was very important to me. Sure. I I often tell my my atomic bomb class I teach now that I was actually very delighted to hear that the, the greatest living physicist at that time because Einstein had died, Niels Bohr, I was delighted to hear he had died because um, uh, uh, on my modern physics test, this was in the early 60s, the professor asked a very cruel question. This would not have been on the syllabus. He asked what great physicist died last night. And I wanted those three points. And um, so I guess the only elderly physicist I knew at that time was Niels Bohr. <laughs> I got the three points, and no one else <laughs> did. I beat my uh, competitors. It's uh, it just s- symbolic of... I was thinking you were going to say you were delighted he died because it's one less person to compete with, too. <laughs> no, I, I didn't probably view myself in that light. I, I, 
just another thing I can, in the tragedy of the death of, of Kennedy at that time I can almost remember sadly that um, my almost my first reaction was so my final will not happen tomorrow and I have another day to study hmm. um, then gradually it sunk in what this meant to the whole country sure. but sure. it was still uh, well, I think that speaks <laughs> to you know you said that you know for in those years you were you were really almost cloistered off right like yeah, focusing we were, on we had our carols doing. in the library and um, it was great yeah. we enjoyed it sure and it was a new world for me and applying for graduate school and all that was part of that uh, I had no idea what graduate school really meant mm-hmm. except there they seemed to be offering money Mm-hmm. And it was particularly true at that time because of these NASA money and so forth coming, pouring out. So you, you mentioned that it, it was at Michigan State where you started to specialize more in yeah. sort of particular areas. What I'm not going to try to say what those areas yeah. are unless you do that, but but, but well, what drew you to the the, the, the biggest point perhaps is at Michigan State I did uh, my thesis topic like that of many folks was not exciting particularly, but it was one I knew I could do. Mm-hmm. And um, it did get me started in optics, and I was first time a, a teaching assistant mm-hmm. um, uh, in the lab. I didn't mm-hmm. have to talk. In front of me. But but I enjoyed that very much. And in the 1960s, that meant um, we were uh, making holograms, which at that time in the early 60s was mid-60s by this time, um, was quite a deal. A Nobel Prize had been given to it um, five years before. And I learned to make holograms and to teach it to other uh, undergraduates, uh, which turned out to be actually um, that experience as a TA in optics uh, while I my actual thesis work was was spectroscopy it had something to do with optics but mm-hmm. but was not my passion at all but the optics and, and measuring stuff and eventually using holograms to measure things mm-hmm. that's what actually got me into the postdoc at Los Alamos and, mm-hmm. and all the rest okay. so it did start at that time and I found I, I kind of enjoyed Patiently in the middle of the night, working in the dark, making optical systems work. I still didn't need to talk to anyone, which mm-hmm. was great. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just me and uh, the light beams and aligning them, and I could do that. So, so as we move from from Michigan State to Los Alamos. Um, can you speak? I mean, I, I know what Los Alamos is. I've heard mm-hmm. of it. I, can you speak to me what the significance of that place is? Because that's a big deal, um, right? To yeah, for me it was uh, the main step into doing the types of physics that I still love and have even in this lab here. Um, Los Alamos was, of course, where they, during uh, 20 years before, roughly, um, uh, had built the atomic bomb there and designed it and uh, tested it uh, in southern New Mexico. And so it was known for that stuff, but my postdoc had nothing to do with classified work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did still need to get a clearance, which was quite still a big deal, mm-hmm. but but my work was not classified. I was working on using lasers to measure 
uh, plasmas mm -hmm. that they were trying to achieve nuclear fusion in a nice controlled way that could get us energy from all the hydrogen in the oceans. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a dream, and I I I remember my interview at Michigan State where the guy uh, I sort of asked, uh, "Does any, has anyone ever used holograms to measure?" <laughs> plasmas and his own oh, his eyes lit up because this was George Sawyer and he knew that uh, one guy looking for a postdoc in fact was the leader guy in the world of using holography to measure hmm. plasmas so this was uh, like a miracle sure. uh, and it had they um, did seem providence that had been led in that direction to make the holograms and to even ask that stupid question in right. such a naive way. Sure. So, uh, in a way, Donna and I, my wife Donna, I also met at Michigan State and um, we uh, ventured off out west for us, for both of us, the first time to hardly mm -hmm. go out west and drove through Colorado down into northern New Mexico to this isolated place called Los Alamos, where, um, and we were there on the, this postdoc while I was on the postdoc uh, two years, and then almost every summer for the next decade, um, I and oftentimes Donna, both of us would would be going back. So it still is a very Enchanted place to us, sure. the land of sure. enchantment. It's called sure. New Mexico. Right. And so, as as a young young physicist, yeah, you know, um, a year ago, um, Chris Garrett and I took a students to Europe, and you know, there there's this this sort of powerful thing of kind of walking in the footsteps of history. Right. You know, I mean, I the little I know about the things that happened in Los Alamos, but did you feel like? I'm in a place where all of these other people have been through here. I mean, even if you're not in the same exact places, but to say, like, to, to go there has, seems to me, would does it have some kind of I knew it was a special place, but frankly, if I had known the history of that place now that I know after teaching this class that sure. I teach about it, um, uh, it would have been so, so cool if I had known more than I did. Yeah. Um, mostly I knew I was going to be working with some some leaders, I, 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 not my main mentor, but I co-authored a, a paper with uh, a student of Enrico Fermi's, hmm. who is a big, big name in physics. Uh, and I knew I was in kind of powerful com company. I also knew that experimentally going there, I did not have much background hmm. except for this being a TA and doing some holograms. Uh, my, I... Uh, my electronics and so forth background was, I still felt weak, and it was, and I knew nothing about plasma physics, which was really the division I was in, mm -hmm. uh, using uh, these hot gases to try to achieve nuclear fusion. You have mm -hmm. to reach 100 million degrees um, type temperatures. Um, I knew nothing about that. So it was, again, a, a big leap. So all in this same decade, um, um, of the late sixties, yeah. it's, it's interesting. I'm I'm sort of detecting a theme here. I feel like that runs through all of this as you move from one place to another, of being willing to step outside of kind of where you feel com to push yourself to say like I, I didn't know a lot about this, and maybe I don't know how much you were conscious conscious of like 
here, here's what I'm going to need to learn to do this next thing. But there's a willingness to do it. I think there's often I, lots of people aren't I willing to do that. I suppose that's true. Although, uh, looking back, I'm not sure there were a lot of choices either. The, sure. I, in many cases, the, the Michigan State or Los Alamos offers uh, were fairly singular. I didn't sure. have a six job offers uh, in my pocket either. Right. But it was... Uh, uh, Wonderful. Yeah. It seemed to yeah, but in, I mean, in hindsight, they're 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 offers, but they're also not safe choices. Of I know I can do this, uh, and, and yes. you know, like that. That's I think um, maybe this is my generation of sort of a reluctance to want to step out. So, like I think about the best students that I knew right. when I was in college. Half of them were people who would, were willing to really step into things that were uncomfortable, and others. Wanted to live in worlds where they knew they they knew they had a mastery before they got there. Yeah, and um, where they where it might be comfortable and right. um, make a fair amount of money and, and so forth. Yeah. Um, and that didn't bother us at all. I suppose we still wanted to do fine. Los Alamos was not uh, as good a place for Donna because she was a biochemist, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in it was not a natural place for her to get a rewarding job. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the reasons we didn't really consider staying in New Mexico. I was listening to your, a little of your interview with Amy mm-hmm. uh, about New Mexico, and I, <laughs> I was really curious uh, what part of it. New Mexico is such a weird place and so diverse. I never quite figured out where she did grow up. But I think it's around Albuquerque is where okay, she grew up. Okay, yeah. so that's kind of the metro center of the state. But anyway, we were, you know, north of Santa Fe, and it was um, – we we did at that time really become much more aware of um, the richness of the Hispanic cultures mm-hmm. in, in northern New Mexico. They're still very proudly Spanish. That was new to us. Mm-hmm. We learned to pronounce a bunch of names, and we also learned about the Indian Pueblos. Mm-hmm. There, Donna taught a, um, a Bible school class up in one of these uh, little villages. Uh, Truches, I guess was the town, uh, in the mountains of northern Mexico. So in a way, we greatly uh, became more aware of the world was much bigger than the Michigan State or the small town Wisconsin mm-hmm. uh, so and uh, New Mexico is a natural mixing spot of cultures of Indian Spanish and Anglo mm-hmm. and we learned we were uh, definitely the the gringos the mm-hmm. Anglos that were there and in a minority mm-hmm. um, even in the lab which is a strange hmm. place in New Mexico it's you know, it was nestled amongst these Indian pueblos and Spanish villages of northern Mexico, but then you come to this town that you might think you were in suburban Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So it's a very artificial place, sure. and it's viewed that way by many of the people in that area. But gradually, we uh, there was a church there that began, to, uh, United Church uh, of, New Me- of Los Alamos, that really uh, was very good for us. We... Um, Got a little bit out of our evangelical subculture. Mm-hmm. Of uh, learned that there are, not, there are very few free churches or covenant churches or BGC type churches sure. in uh, New Mexico, and sure. uh, we became Presbyterians for a little bit of our lives there. So, how long were you were you at 
Los Alamos? Well, the postdoc was two years, okay. and at that, and then, um, like I said, most summers after that went back, which was uh, eventually took a teach a teaching job in Illinois. So how do you, how do you get from everything you've just described to a classroom? Uh, that's that's uh, kind of a miraculous thing. But gradually, I begin. I think um, we begin to get the feeling that while I enjoyed research and was fairly passionate about it, that it did not seem to be my calling, mm-hmm. um, and that I had found about that time that I could talk to people and maybe even teach as long as I talked about physics uh, or uh, the applications of physics. And gradually you began to get a vision that maybe uh, teaching would be okay. So I actually applied to different colleges, had a few offers, um, but took one that at Western Illinois University, which is a, in, out in the cornfields of Illinois. So that was, a, again, a big transition uh, from the dry, beautiful country of New Mexico to the s- s- sultry, humid, 15 inches of black dirt parts of Illinois. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was new to us. But anyway, Western Illinois gave me a chance to teach mm-hmm. and learn to teach. And so I would really say I learned to teach physics well there and to start to mentor uh, folks in research as well. I found I could do both. Um, but it still, walking into the classroom that first time was, um, for me, uh, what am I doing here mm-hmm. type of thing. And still today, uh, I go into the classroom every time with a, a prayer in my heart because this is not that easy for me. Sure. Uh, so sure. it's... But eventually I learned to love it. I also became very active in the, uh, a professional association at that time, the American Association of Physics Teachers, mm-hmm. which is an unusual organization that actually spans high school through graduate school physics teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it also uh, celebrates physics research by teachers, mm-hmm. and in some cases teaching research, pedagogical research, but also uh, I had very little interest then or now in pedagogical research, mm-hmm. but I was very interested in taking my, uh, the research I did, which like to measure things with mm-hmm. lasers, to take that into the classroom was um, a dream that uh, began to happen. Um, and I had some good mentors there in teaching that um, I still remember some of them pushed me pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Eventually, I did become the last year or so at, at Western Illinois. I became was acting chair during the sabbatical. I learned I could do some of that leadership stuff, although teaching was more fun than mm-hmm. man- management to me. But I found I could do both. Um, for Donna, Western Illinois was also not an exciting place to use her background. She was becoming more and more interested in environmental chemistry and biochemistry. Mm-hmm. She had been really impacted by um, 
Rachel Carlson mm-hmm. and all those folks of sure. the decade prior and really had a, a dream of uh, using her background more for environmental impact. And uh, eventually, as we moved from Illinois to the Twin Cities, which obviously for me was to some extent coming home. Mm-hmm. Uh, was she from Michigan? No, she's actually from New York State. Okay. But um, she actually shared with me actually fairly a very rural farm background. Hmm. But still, um, she, she did get uh, a master's in, in biochem from Michigan State. And has used that off and on, but not at this time it's becoming more and more into environmental chemistry. And so uh, by coming to the Twin Cities, uh, this is now about 1980, mm-hmm. um, that became possible for her. Okay. So what, what led to that move for you from? Um, probably to some extent uh, feeling that I wanted, uh, I was interested in a Christian college mm-hmm. uh, teaching and had been all along. In fact, one of those job offers after Los Alamos was Gordon College that I turned down. Um, there was someone there named Dave Brandt at Gordon College at that time <laughs> who tried to hire me. I, I did not accept that. But at this time, after uh, almost a decade of doing work with undergraduates, I really felt I could um, uh, would enjoy teaching at a Christian college. Um knowing its strengths and weaknesses because I had had nothing to do all of my life with sure. uh, Christian higher education. So did you notice Did you notice anything immediately different from Western Illinois to, to Bethel in terms of, I mean, if that was, that was no. part of the motivation for wanting to come? Um, well, first of all, the, at that time in 1980, the physics here was almost, hardly existed mm-hmm. and and it had a couple of good folks namely and uh, Tom Greenley and and Bob Carlson but facilities was just about zero mm-hmm. uh so that's a big and at western Illinois we had a physics chemistry building with sure. uh, abundant space i would still love it today <laughs> um so that was an obvious difference i didn't i did find when i came here that the faculty seemed a tad more driven and professional, really, mm-hmm. than I had found it at uh, hmm. at Western. So it it was actually refreshing. I can, um, you know, there are obvious differences. I remember for the first time going to into the gym for chapel, and uh, at that time appreciating what a rich opportunity that was, mm-hmm. uh, which I had never experienced. Donna actually was a graduate of this school west of Chicago that we're all familiar with, <laughs> uh, Christian school. So um, she kind of knew more about that than I did, mm-hmm. and um, she and not all of that positive to mm-hmm. her. I mean, she knew about Bethel or Wheaton bubbles too, sure. and um, I think so. We were we came in. I'd say eyes open. We sure. knew strengths and weaknesses of this type of environment, but in a way, how precious uh, opportunity it is. And the students, uh, I did in coming here from Western. Uh, we have students, even to that time, and this is 19, fall of nineteen eighty. Uh, we had students here that uh, were really superior 
who mm-hmm. could go to any school in the country but wanted to go to Bethel mm-hmm. College at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I enjoyed that uh, and kind of dove in and started to do... Um, I did haul some equipment here. I was able to bring with me from Western uh, with uh, some benevolence on their part. Mm-hmm. Um, so we gradually got started. How did the how did the physics program grow here? Because by the time I was a student in the mid nineties, yeah. um, so you know, fifteen years after that, um, I knew. I didn't know much about Bethel when I came here, but I, I learned very quickly if I wanted to find really bright, interesting people, I needed to wander over to these labs, and I was going to run into students, this, like students who were going to blow me away constantly. And 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 like I said, I I, I wasn't a, I wasn't I was a history major, a computer science major, and then a history major, but um, I, I I gravitated towards this towards right. these rooms over here because of the students. The caliber of students that were here. How did you get to that as an institution? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, there, I think it was a general thrust that was occurring at that time. First, first of all, we had a basis to build on here, um, and much of it indeed really started um, 10 years prior to me arriving with uh, R.A. Carlson, Bob Carlson, we would call him. Students call him R.A. He was a unique fixture, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, in some ways not the um, classic classroom teacher, and probably not. All, well, he probably scared students to death mm-hmm. to a large extent. My father-in-law had had uh, R.A. in the uh, late '60s, early okay. '70s, and I've heard many a story. <laughs> he taught physics as almost a branch of mathematics, and he was very good. He enjoyed mathematics so much. And uh, but he was an engineer, really, in background. Mm-hmm. And but what he did start at Bethel, which really was significant, was what you might call project-based teaching, mm-hmm. uh, which is still in the vogue today. Uh, and we still, n- around the nation, are are proud of what we do uh, in these labs now. But that was his tradition. He knew he could accomplish a mentoring one-on-one with students, and he was very good at that. So some he had students, a few who certainly went on to PhDs, but it stayed very small. Um, but he had that tradition of helping students uh, get this glimmer of uh, that their calling as a, as a Christian, indeed, might um, involve using their abilities uh, in physics and mathematics. So he started this math physics program at that time. And then in the late 70s, um, he was joined by uh, the powerhouse of physics, uh, Tom Greenlee, who is an extremely gifted person, uh, still is and still is teaching here, um, who brought knowledge of of physics um, that R.A. did not have at all. Uh, and, And so he... Tom then it kind of ended up uh, putting some real teeth into the physics end of our program, which began to kind of blend with that project-oriented approach. And for me, it was an enticing option. You know, I could see that when I came that I, I could fit into that as well. Mm-hmm. I was about as different from R.A. Carlson as anyone could be hmm. uh, in terms of the way I approach physics. 
Um, but it turned out we it was a complementary relationship because uh, he could do things that I couldn't and vice versa. So and it, so we were building on that. And I still remember my interview with with Tom Greenley in a hotel in Chicago where he was they were looking kind of for a chair of the department and uh, and um, Tom's uh, Tom of course has elegant physics credentials his PhD from Caltech and took quantum mechanics mm-hmm. from Richard Feynman and survived to tell and so forth but he's a, a deeply Christian teacher and uh, so I think he probed me on that more than my physics mm-hmm. uh, but anyway I could see it was it probably would work mm-hmm. and eventually I did get the chance um, a lot of you know in a way risk taking by a president what, who would be President Rush Arbor shortly mm-hmm. to build up physics here. And um, so we kind of jumped at it. Um, two, two questions that I think are, are related. One is thinking about kind of how does physics live in a liberal arts institution. Um, and, and, and part of this is, is also thinking about um, the number of talented physics majors that I know have very interesting double majors. The number of physics majors I knew who were also music majors or who were writing majors or who were mm-hmm. philosophy majors. And, and, and um, how, do you, how do you see physics functioning in the, the liberal arts institution? Well, it's a, a complex relationship. Uh, but it's true. Um, I've worked with physics departments particularly in my work with APT around the country, and, and you see this wherever you It's not just a Bethel thing. Um, the people who have the discipline, and it's discipline as much as smarts to do physics, are often have the discipline to do the arts, uh, particularly music in many cases. Um, and that has certainly been true here. You know, you can be philosophical. It's a quest for beauty mm-hmm. in each case and all of that. But in a way, I think it's the discipline hmm. required that that makes it such a complementary relationship. Indeed, there, there is a tradition in our department that uh, our best majors are, are also in band or something, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the brass section, is dominantly. <laughs> <laughs> you talk to Steve Thompson, he'll tell you that uh, we... Uh, Half of his brass players almost come out of uh, the physics, engineering, science end of the world. It's, it's it really does seem to work, um, and it helps us draw those students here. Sure. So uh, we end up then competing, you know, with other, particularly liberal arts colleges. Some of them Christian, some not. We. We want to get those students here, and oftentimes it's music, and I must say also athletics. With physics is still tragically dominantly male, mm-hmm. and uh, so actually football and the athletics, other athletics, often uh, we work with Steve Johnson. So we're, that's another kind of good interface with the campus, mm-hmm. um, where discipline is obviously needed there as well. Mm-hmm. So I think we build on that maturity and uh, yeah i know some of the folks you went to school with here who uh, one thing is they they literally could have been they could have been an MIT if they had hmm. wanted to do that and 
Um, so they have wonderful strengths backgrounds coming in. Um, we do depend um, on the, that liberal arts environment then to, to draw those students. They are students who would be more attracted, particularly because of the Christian identity at Bethel mm-hmm. here than they would be at Berkeley or MIT or or perhaps even Carleton or something like that because they could have gone there. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think about um, one of the one of the people who was a physics major was a good friend of mine when I was here. He um, he, uh, I forget where he got his PhD. Um, I think it was in Arizona, um, uh, and he's working as an engineer now. And and he has this amazing ability to describe what he's doing to me, and I can understand what he's talking about, right. yeah. even though I know I don't understand what he's like. I, I understand what. <laughs> He's trying to do and how he's trying to solve problems. And he it's not like he's trying to put it in layman's terms for me. He just knows how to say it in a way that he can take out enough of the the calculation of what he's doing right. to say, here's the problem I'm trying to solve and here's how I tried to go about and it. And I'm, those are people I'm fascinated by. And, and I, you know, I think um, the people I've encountered here, uh, the physics students and people who, who I was a student here with, um, that's the thing that always impresses me is the number of people who can articulate to someone like me the really minute things that they're doing. And I think that is one reason for many of those students the honors program at Bethel has been important as well because it is if the honors program at Bethel has strengths and weaknesses, I think, but one strength is to really push students to do exactly that. Even in their senior project, they have to not only do their, say, physics project, but they have to be able to talk to these other folks uh, in their own language about what they did, and right. and um, folks like Matt Lang, who I assume you're talking yes, about yes, here, yes. Uh, are very good at that, um, and we've had a lot of, we've been blessed with them, and, and it, you know, it's kind of a critical mass thing, you get, uh, indeed, three or four of those folks, and we have the same thing now sure. in the back room here. Um, they they feed on each other. They right. um, push each other, challenge each other, laugh with each other, yeah. um, and play uh, countless jokes on each other. <laughs> um, that that creativity um, thrives in a laborious environment. There's yeah. no doubt. And, and I think the the it speaks to also the the physical spaces too. That I mean that there is um, there is a subculture that exists. Back in these labs, that um, I think you, that that, that to, to me has always it was always just a really interesting, creative, active place where I think the lines between uh, something they're enjoying and something that they're working hard at learning get blurred. Right, and I think that's that that was always really interesting to to watch and be part of. And we have tried to champion that environment. Uh, because of your position with uh, academic enrichment. So we try to do that, as you know, at freshman level um, uh, and and to try to bring out that part of folks. Uh, we're almost unique in the U.S. of, of being uh, naive enough to do experimental projects every semester in general physics. Mm-hmm. That is a hallmark of our department as well, uh, where we actually, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but almost all the students will say that was one of the richest parts of their first year at Bethel, mm-hmm. 
was those uh, projects where they were, they had to ask the questions and they could put they could get into the shop they could go out in the woods and shoot their rifles into blocks of wood and um, we didn't want to know what they were doing uh, <laughs> uh, b- but we've we've tried to champion that mm-hmm. and at the earliest levels and that that happened back I must say, back in the 80s, when I came to Bethel, one of my goals, almost clearly, uh, I think, articulated at that time, was that I wanted physics to be more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had, at that time, somewhat, uh, you know, a, a heavy uh, reputation. In, indeed, I found it was really bothered me when I first came to Bethel the tradition that if you were a physicist, uh, we really can't talk to you. Mm-hmm. Because you 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 write scribbles on the blackboard and, and you're in a different world, and I came in on my bicycle with my picture of Snoopy and I wanted physics to be fun and um, playful, and obviously you can go too far in that direction. Right. right. Um, but it's um, well. That reminds me. Going back to yeah. the honors program, I know one of the forums we did when I was a student here was. Just you doing demonstrations, and we were all in in one of the one of the labs, and oh, we were all huddled around, and you were just I don't even remember. I think the point was just to do demonstrate. I'm sure right. there was more to that, but it was. Right. But the idea was, hey, we can have fun doing this. That was that was that was clearly my takeaway from it. Right. We in those first years, um, with the help of all of my colleagues, we tried to do what we called physics fun nights. Or sometimes the flying circus of physics, and so forth. <laughs> but for Bethel, it was a very different picture of physics, mm-hmm. um, um, where where you you started with the phenomena, you enjoyed it, you put your creativity into it, and then when you were done, you might indeed have. My goodness, I guess I got to do some math or computational physics to figure out what is happening here. Right. But it's just the opposite of that my uh, colleague Bob Carlson would do. He would do the mathematical analysis first, and then he was really championed going into the lab and maybe checking to see if the math was correct. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a flip. Sure. And to attract students, even from high school level, mm-hmm. um, I think you do have to start with the phenomena mm-hmm. and with demos. Uh, so demos became very, and still are, a very important part of our program. Um, even now, right now at Bethel, we're talking about where uh, the physical sciences should be in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one thing that's uh, not negotiable, we have to be in an environment where our classrooms and lecture halls are conveniently available to the stuff, mm-hmm. and like in this room. And it... Um, that's what we have to continue to build on. Um, when, where does the bombs class come from? Sort of changing gears um, here because this is this is interesting yeah. because this is you teaching now not to physics majors necessarily, right. but but teaching in the gen ed. Right, actually, the bombs class—that's its generic name. Uh, it, its formal name has changed, but it actually started for me back in Illinois. I taught. A similar class there under a liberal arts um, category of some mm-hmm. sort. Um, the Bonds class um, builds on, it's even varied over the years, certainly a book 
that summarizes how these very human physicists and chemists and engineers of the last century got themselves involved with nuclear weapons. So for me, it does, of course, overlap a bit with my time in Los Alamos and kind of my curiosity after I had left the place, Mm -hmm. what, what really was the background of this place. So I started to read these books. And so back in uh, Macomb in Western Illinois, I, I I used to use the little, what was then a paperback, Brighter Than a Thousand Suns. It's a book by Robert Young, uh, which was the best book at that time on this period of history. But more important, when about the time I came to Bethel, there was a, a relatively new book by Richard Rhodes, The Making of the Atomic Bomb, which is a Pulitzer Prize-winning book. It's beautifully and challengingly written, um, and it's a very big book. Mm-hmm. But it is the book that we try to use for this class, um, and it seems to work, although for some students, particularly those who are convinced that science has nothing to do with them, it, it can be a very challenging hmm. book, book and subject. But most important, this is a class then that builds on what I might call the human component of how the egos and, in some cases, religious faiths uh, and the uh, pride and and curiosity of these scientists, starting off with basic stuff, eventually uh, ends up uh, perhaps... um, saving or costing all kinds of lives depending on how you view (laughs) the controversial end of the World War II. And that, so that course uh, particularly keys on um, on what motivated historically uh, and personally these scientists and engineers who were involved with this. Um, And it's a fascinating story. It also gets students uh, interested in uh, some of the details of what you might call technical warfare. Mm-hmm. It does relate fairly well to like some of our history classes, like sure. Chris Absolutely. teaches on World War One and Two, mm-hmm. um, because that's this class is stuck in a way starts before World War One and runs um, actually through some of the Cold War era mm-hmm. of post World War Two. So it's a, a class I've enjoyed teaching. It uh, may be kind of ending at this point. I'm certainly want, I've been teaching it quite often as an honors class, mm-hmm. and sometimes as a just a regular K class in our mm-hmm. curriculum. Um, but in a way that's um, a little harder to do in the future, particularly mm-hmm. with adjuncts being uh, sure. Cut back a bit around this place, so right. it, so that may not happen again. But uh, it's been something I, I um, even even tonight I, uh, the honors banquet is happening, and uh, I look forward to seeing some of those students that I've had in that class. A few of them um, a, a bit more scientifically inclined would probably um, found the course quite easy, although interest very interesting history, and a few others so the hardest class I've ever done, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, they both tend to view it very positively, but um, it, it's different with each yeah. student. Yeah, I, I, I obviously didn't didn't take that class, but 
I know. I don't even remember what class it is. We, I, I took a class where we spent a, a good chunk of time on Robert Oppenheimer and oh, okay. his relationship sure. to that. And I mean, thinking about the, the sort of the human mm-hmm. element in physics, I mean, he was. It's someone I can't stop yeah. wanting to learn more about. Yeah, he's kind of a tragic figure um, and an interesting one. People keep writing great books about him. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, a few recent biographies are very good. Um, and certainly also the the, uh, the ethical issues raised at that period um, and for Oppenheimer himself the issues of of his Jewishness and mm-hmm. how it affected or did not affect him mm-hmm. um, and uh, in a way here's one of the most brilliant physicists of the 20th century um, most would say he did not get a Nobel Prize because he could never focus long enough on one problem to carry it to its logical conclusion. Um, but is um, so. Yes, he's a very interesting figure that I find students are very interested in. Yeah. And the other thing that I just found interesting was the the idea of you. And 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 I don't know how how common it would have been to sort of bring all of these people like to sort of. Just sort of seemed like a dream team of of physicists and scientists, putting them together and then having them have to wrestle with a lot of things, both scientifically and to different extents, morally, ethically. Is is right. It's a it's a it's a, it's a fascinating moment that you know. I, I and you still feel that tension even today if you if you visit Los Alamos, um, you walk into the library and there's the statue of Robert Oppenheimer. When you enter the li- that library, and, and in fact the the postdoc, the most prestigious postdoc fellowship there, which I didn't have, was, was the Robert Oppenheimer. Uh, so it's interesting that this, granted at times very hawkish weapons lab, is still openly views with awe and heroicness Robert Oppenheimer, this uh, liberal Jewish intellectual mm-hmm. who brought all kinds of very left-wing people into the lab and my mentor at Los Alamos who I didn't talk about uh, Francia Hoda um, obviously saw Oppenheimer as one of the heroes of his life mm-hmm. um, he was certainly would have overlapped with him at some um, so it's, it's it's interesting how uh, actually on the web one of the most fascinating interviews with Oppenheimer was done by Robert Merrill, uh, Edward Merrill, mm-hmm. um, on the See It Now series, mm-hmm. um, where he actually was able to get out of Robert Oppenheimer a much more human picture than Oppenheimer has a tendency when he gave speeches to, to shoot pretty high and um, kind of cold and erudite at mm-hmm. times. But Merle managed, in the midst of a lot of cigarette smoke, get out of him uh, a very... It, it's worth watching hmm, on the web sometime. That, yeah. uh, uh, Merle's interview with Oppenheimer about a year before he died of, hmm. of lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's... They probably both died of lung cancer. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, this this um, leads, leads kind of to the, the last kind of big question before I get to some uh, some of the things at the end. Um, is thinking about faith in physics. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you, you you were drawn here because it's a Christian college. Um, I think in in different parts of 
evangelical subculture, the idea of faith and science is this big tension. For others, there it's not a tension at all. Uh, I, I don't really know how to ask the question other than, do you have thoughts on I mean, obviously you have thoughts on yeah. this, but... It's, um, it's not only... Um, br- there, aren't, there also are many practical student questions on science and faith that... Mm-hmm. Um, most students are are science and engineering students at Bethel uh, have learned all the they learned to have learned to respect science and for the most part believe it but they also uh, are taught often in their churches to that science really can't be trusted so there's the that as if scientists were somehow working together um which they don't very well, mm-hmm. uh, to counter uh, a theistic perspective. Uh, so you know, yeah, it's it's those types of broad issues that I find with students are often very much there. Uh, I I find it uh, tragic in a way that we take we work very hard in the physics education community. I just you know spent couple of years at NSF recently, some of it funding grants in physics education. In many cases, these grants are are made to help students overcome their Aristotelian tendencies in the way they think. Hmm. Uh, uh, Aristotle was not always right in physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, but we often are intuitively are very Aristotelian in our thinking, and, and so physics courses work very hard at helping students conquer those conceptual problems. Uh, we don't do so well at helping students deal with um, uh, some foundational thoughts of, of how their faith uh, may mesh or not mesh so well with what they're being taught in a science class. And I, I the first thing we have to say is that it has to be a subject we're willing to talk about, mm-hmm. particularly in a school like Bethel. But I would argue even in a public school, there's nothing wrong with talking about uh, where where your faith might be in conflict with your science. Mm-hmm. I, I've been in many physics high-level boardrooms where the comments are made that Religion should never be mentioned in a science classroom, hmm. and I have great difficulty with that. Even when I was teaching in a public university, I, I did not find it that difficult for students to get a sense of where I was coming from uh, and what was important to me and how, in a way, my faith might help my science mm-hmm. um, and, in a way, how my science helps my faith. Uh, I do find talking to Christians, that's what they often have the hardest thing, getting their hands around of how they hear someone like me say that my relationship with God is almost most dependent on on the, the science I do and appreciate and my appreciation for the community of scientists, which for the most part I trust. Mm-hmm. Um, that... And it's almost like part of God's word for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nature, as we see in a lab like this, is so. That's in a way the first word, mm-hmm. and it it's what our. So, to, to have science as a whole attacked, 
by people of faith is um, they don't always realize they're treading on our on our dreams and visions and what God has called us to do, mm-hmm. and uh, it hurts sometimes. So, mm-hmm. uh, oh, I haven't answered any. Oh yes, questions there, but except no, it, it's that, with it's with us all the time. Yes, my question was mostly, could you talk about this? And you did, you did. Um, so we're 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 uh, I've used too much of your time as it is. Um, I want to close with a couple questions that I ask yeah. um, that I ask everyone. Um, the first is, if you could recommend a book, and it doesn't need to be the best book you've ever read, but a book that helps that that, that you've read that you sort of said this explains sort of how I who I am or how I look at the world or anything like that. Mm. What would you recommend? Um, a couple of books would come to mind, I guess. Um, one is a weird one, which I'm not sure I would recommend him <laughs> read just because it's a weird book, but to me personally has been important. So um, it's a book written by a, a North Park uh, seminary prof of the past named Wesley Nelson. Wesley was a covenant pastor and eventually was a teacher at North Park Sam. But Wesley wrote a book published, I guess, by Covenant Press, uh, which I keep coming back to peculiar. It's, this is you know, a very personal thing. I mm-hmm. don't it's not a great book. Right, right. But right. it's a very personal book. It's called Crying for My Mother is the name of the book. And Wesley Nelson was a uh, trained as an engineer. I forget where Berkeley or someplace. Very gifted scientist, and he writes in this book, crying for my mother, about his his wrestling with, in a way, uh, being called finding God's calling in his life, which he uh, uh, was a long, painful thing for him. Hmm. And for him, uh, and, and he also he also was this very shy, introverted hmm. guy, who eventually became uh, a pretty articulate and very warm, uh, engaging pastor hmm. and a teacher of being how to be a good pastor hmm. in uh, somewhat of a Pietistic denomination. So it, it, I. Uh, I keep coming back. It's a little thin book. It has he did an update on it uh, late in his life. I think he's still alive. Um, um, anyway, I, I still have it. Uh, keep coming back to it peculiarly. Um, he had s- some of the same um, the types of things we've talked about here that I grew up with on the farm mm-hmm. and uh, this feeling that. When you're working with your hands, you're doing God's work hmm. and, and can understand things. Uh, otherwise, uh, I had one, uh, I recently spent, uh, this time last year I was in Pyongyang, North Korea, and so I recently read uh, The Orphan Master's Son, which is a Pulitzer Prize book recently on on what the peculiar, hard, very hard to understand subculture and history of this uh, country of North Korea. So I, I've enjoyed that very Fantastic. much. And, and I, it, you have to kind of wade through that one. It does take a while. Um, but it's still, for me personally right now, is uh, quite meaningful as I try to figure out that experience mm-hmm. and what how I can grow from it. 
even as I teach here. Um, frankly, the books on Oppenheimer have mm-hmm. meant a lot to me, and I know some of my colleagues, like Chad Hoyt in our department, has the uh, American uh, Prometheus book mm-hmm. on Oppenheimer on his shelf. There's a recent book by Ray Monk on uh, uh, the latest biography of of Oppenheimer um, that uh, came out a couple of years ago that uh, I went through it, uh, actually recommended by Don Albright uh, hmm. in chemistry, who is uh, actually a person at Bethel who's really affected me a lot as well, who, uh, who uh, uh, anyway, the books on Oppenheimer I do keep coming back to because they're the, they're almost, again, that flawed human sure. physicist perspective, also a person dealing with the uh, a faith background, mm-hmm. which uh, was very weak for Oppenheimer, but still he was Jewish, mm-hmm. and he couldn't set that aside, just like maybe I'm Wisconsin, Minnesota guy that um, I have to live with that. So those are they're just some books that come to mind. Fantastic. Um, and if you have one, uh, any other piece of media you would recommend? It could be a piece of music. It could be no. uh, a film. It could be anything... I mentioned the Ed Murrow yeah. thing. I'm uh, definitely doing fun. that later you this should afternoon. look at that. Uh, um, it's about 30 minutes of... Um, there's one thing uh, which I've occasionally posted on C Faculty are links to long before Cosmos series by Carl Sagan. There was the earlier series called The Ascent of Man by Jacob Bernowski. The whole thing is on the web now, hmm. and you can come to the segments of it. The the segment on it, on knowledge or certainty particularly, I keep coming back to, I play it often in hmm. classes, particularly in the bombs class. Um, here's Jacob Bernowski, Jewish, kneeling in the ashes of Auschwitz, uh, pleading with uh, his physics and science colleagues to understand that science is a very human form of knowledge, that at best it, um, at its best, it's one of the most precious things we have, but it's still a very human thing. And it does not arrive at absolute truths. And when it, people think it has, that's when you get a Holocaust. Uh, in a way, it's, mm-hmm. it's still something I keep coming mm-hmm. back to, and, and students uh, uh, seem to enjoy it as well. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, last question. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of a big one, but you can answer this however you want. Um, if you could, if you could, I could design your ideal school or your ideal curriculum. What would, what would that start to look like? An ideal curriculum for me, I guess. Um, uh, for me, that probably means the ideal physics curriculum. And my recent two years, I was program director at NSF. Uh, in D.C. for a couple of years, actually working for Bethel while I was there. It's a peculiar thing. Hmm. These are called rotator positions. But anyway, my job there was to fund innovations in physics education around the country. Um, so uh, those sorts of questions are in mm-hmm. your mind all the time. What do I really believe in? Um, and to me, the, the, the thing that's often not emphasized enough in physics education or science education is is that human component 
we sit at a place like NSF uh, and and look at wonderful ways to reinforce crucial concepts in physics or, or science, but often treat the students as almost as if they were robots. So to me, um, I almost keep coming back to R.A. Carlson's old tenet here in, in this department. Has the student turned the corner? Have they caught the glimpse of their calling as a human being in science and engineering? Uh, he would say, and somehow the best physics teaching or engineering teaching has to involve uh, helping students turn the corner. And that may or may not mean uh, dealing with their most elegant concepts in physics. It helps. They have to build on their personal calling. Um, that, that even has meaning to a non-Christian. Somehow you have to find what makes you tick and what as a human being you can contribute. Uh, in a way, to me, physics teaching, so, so in a way, for me, yes, our physics majors should take a bombs-type class. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't, obviously, all aren't able to do that. Um, but whether it's traveling in Europe, going around the science labs of Europe, uh, however you do it, somehow you have to get in touch with the human dimension of science along with the conceptual part of it. That's the crucial thing to me. The, the two physicists who have won the Nobel Peace Prize, both in their Nobel talks, Andrei Sakharov being one of them, and uh, Joseph Rothbard, the other, make this passionate plea, don't forget the human side of your science, because that's what is the most important. Einstein said it, too. Einstein says almost everything like that. But, um, <laughs> but uh, that, to me, is still the, what I most want to see in a physics department. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, for sitting down with me. It's been great. Uh, and the very reflective... When we arrive, sons and daughters will make our homes on the water. We'll build our walls. Aluminum will fill our mouths. The cinnamon.